How you guys doing this morning? Good. I always love baptisms. I feel like Superman. All right, Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's read the first six verses together. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 5, and we will read the first six verses together. For those who are visiting, we've been um, doing a uh, kind of a verse-by-verse study through the book of Nehemiah. And so we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. And so follow along with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Father, I pray that you'd use it to prick our hearts, speak truth deep into our souls. Lord, cause us to be uh, faithful to Christ as a result of the things that we have heard and read this morning. Father, may I simply be a mouthpiece for your spirit today. And Father, may you use me as your vessel to speak truth into the hearts of your people. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Are you guys going to be seated? Back in 1958, there was a relatively small community in a town in Pennsylvania that they sacrificially gave and raised money to build a building that would house the police department, the fire department, as well as town halls. And so they, you know, typically in a, in a small town like that, when you, you raise money and you, you get a nice building like this, you always have like a ribbon cutting ceremony. And on this particular day, I mean, this was a huge deal for this town. And so they had a, a ribbon cutting ceremony and about the entire town showed up and right around 6,000 people. I mean, it, they were just ecstatic that they had this nice new building. And so they, they you know, they, did the ribbon cutting ceremony and dedicated the building and everything that you would do in an environment like that. And then within about two months, they began to notice that on the exterior of the building, the walls were beginning to crack. And it was just a little while longer and they noticed that it, when they raised the windows and they tried to shut them, the windows wouldn't shut all the way. A little while longer, the, the doors would no longer shut. And then, literally, they began to see cracks beginning to form in the floor. Not much longer, the roof began to leak. And within, I think it was six months to a year's time, they had to shut down that building and condemn it as unfit to be occupied. It crushed, the, it crushed that little community that they had given so much to occupy this land. You can hear me now, can't you? Bless the Lord. And, um, and so, that, I mean, they were just devastated. So they hired a firm to come in and study 
what was it that caused this building? I mean, it was it was a nice building. And here's what they found. Several miles, miles away, they were mining. And they were setting off explosions to mine the ground there. And you couldn't see it, you couldn't feel it, but... While they were setting off the explosions, it was it was reshaping and resettling the earth underneath this building, and nobody could know it. Just inconspicuously, this building was falling apart. In Nehemiah chapter four, we began to look at this idea of opposition. Nehemiah is a great leader, and God's called him there to build a wall. And that don't that may not sound much to you, but I mean, a wall was a necessity for that day and time. It it kept the criminals out. It it, it was it was it was just something that they had to have in, in any event of, of of modern warfare in that time. And the walls were broken down. That the gates were burned with fire. And so Nehemiah, the, the people are in distress. And so Nehemiah comes and he's. He's got this huge task from the Lord to rebuild this wall. Nehemiah chapter 4, or really Nehemiah chapter 2, you're introduced to these these knuckleheads, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and they're opposed to rebuilding the wall. And then you get to Nehemiah 4, and the work don't stop. I mean, they put people in place, and, and they set guards in place. They work with one hand, and they've got a sword in the other hand, and the work continues. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, the workers go on strike. Uh, there's a division among the Jewish brothers there. What external strife in opposition could not do, internal strife brought the work to a screeching halt. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the most dangerous opposition we'll ever face is not from the outside. The most dangerous opposition that you and I face will be from the people that sit across from us in the pew. It always has been. Persecution has always done more to to draw, to to draw the church together. Typically, when there's when the church flounders the most, it's when we don't get along well with one another. And I think if you look around our country today, and I very much wanted to draw some application to our country from this message, um, but I just didn't have the liberty from the Lord to do so. But our country will never be destroyed from the outside. Our country will be destroyed from the inside out. Abraham Lincoln even even made an observation very similar to that. But for you and I, ladies and gentlemen, as we represent the church, the body of Christ, if we can't love one another, how in the world do we expect the world to look at us and to see something in us that we need from one another? So this morning, what I really want to do is I want to walk through Nehemiah chapter 5, the first I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13 verses there. And then I want to make some observation of some things that he dealt with. And then I want to see if I can apply it, not to our culture, but to our church and see how see how the, the Spirit might take it and, and use it in our lives. Okay? So let's first of all, let's ask this question. What's going on? What's the opposition that he deals with? Now, if you've got your Bibles open, you could just follow along with me very quickly. Joseph, if you can, if you could check that thermostat, it is hot in here. If you can, If you can cut that air conditioner down. All right, uh, verse 2. Man, whew. All right, so verse 2. It indicates, now, there are some people. Um, hey, if you're hot, you sit right over here by Miss Shirley. It feels good right over here at the vent. All right, so verse 2. It indicates that there are people, hey, we've got large families. We've got sons. We've got daughters. And so we don't really have enough. And so we've got to do whatever we can to get food. Then there's another group of people in verse 3. 
And they owned property, but they were get, they were having to mortgage their homes, their, their fields, their vineyards, vineyards just so that they could buy food. Another group in verses 4 and 5, uh, they say that they've mortgaged everything they have to, to be able to pay their taxes. And the only thing they've got left to do is they have to sell their children into slavery in order to pay the taxes. Now, here's what's going on with the situation. Verse 3 says that the reason there's there, the trouble is is that there's a famine because they've been rebuilding the wall. And so workers have had to come in from the outside of Jerusalem. More people have had to gather in Jerusalem. And so there's a famine, but then there's even more mouths to feed in that situation. So there wasn't enough food to go along. And then here's a second problem. The king's taxes were too high. It's impossible, or it's possible, that the tax collectors, that they were taking more money than what the king had already called for. And so you've got the king's tax that is high. And then the tax collectors are more than likely they're taking more than they're supposed to, padding their own pockets. And then the final thing is this. The interest rate. And so they're borrowing money and they're mortgaging their fields. And so the interest rates are so high they could not pay back what they borrowed. And so they were having to force their children to be sold into slavery. Now let me ask you a question. Does high interest rates and high taxes ring a bell with any of you in this room this morning? I think we can all relate to what they're going through. High interest rate and high taxes. It sounds a lot like our country, right? And so it gets so bad that the workers go on strike in of the rebuilding the wall, and so Nehemiah has to deal with the problem. And so notice what he does. He hears what's going on in verse 6. I mean, and it just, it, it cuts him to the core. I mean, he's mad. He's, he's irate. Now, I love verse 7. He took counsel within himself. He stopped for a moment. You ever been, been seeing an ugly email or an ugly text message and you typed it out and you really wanted to hit sin, but you knew you shouldn't do it? That, that's what Nehemiah did. He took counsel within himself. He said, uh, I don't need to say that. Okay? He took counsel within himself. He thought, what do I need to do? And so he, he called an assembly. He said, stop the work. We've got to deal with this because if we don't deal with this, it doesn't really matter if we rebuild, rebuild the wall or not. We've got to do this. And so he, he held, verse 7 says, that he held a great assembly against them. And so from verses 8 through 13, Nehemiah confronts the leaders and he calls them to do three things. And so just stay with me. It's not in your notes, okay? I'll put some things on the screen in just a moment. And so I'm just trying to work through the text. He calls them to do three things. And so first of all, here's what he says. You've got to stop charging interest. Your fellow countrymen, they, they need food to survive. They need some money. And here you are, you're trying to gain from their loss. That, that's not right. You need to quit charging interest to your fellow brothers. And so when they stop charging interest, they would begin to, they would stop taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. And here's the second thing. He said, if you, if you've taken their fields, you need to give it back to them. You ever feel like you found yourself in a financial hole and you can't get out of it? That's where these guys were. There was no possibility that they could dig themselves out of this financial hole because they had taken all of their land. I mean, that was the only way they would be able to do it. So Nehemiah says, you've got to stop charging them interest. And if you've taken their land, I'm telling you, you need to give it back to your countrymen today. And finally, he held them accountable before God. You see him down in verse 13, here's what he says. He says, I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And here's what everybody says. 
And they said, Amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. And so in other words, Nehemiah says, if we're going to deal with this problem, you've got to be accountable before God, and if you're not willing to do it, so help me, God, as I'm shaking out my garment, God's going to shake you and take this stuff away from you if you don't do what you've agreed to do. You know, it's one thing for you to make a promise to a preacher. It's one thing for you to make a promise to somebody else. But when you're saying before God, this is what I'm going to do, you better buck up and pay attention to that, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what Nehemiah is saying here. You, you, you better do this. You're going you're gonna to be in trouble. Now, I said all that to kind of get us to this point. How could we take that and apply it to us for just a moment? Now, think about it. Nehemiah stopped the work so that he could deal with this problem. There's a great statement I read this week. It's going to be on the overhead. Here's what it said. There was no need to build a wall to protect the people from the outsiders because the people were going to destroy each other on the inside. Maybe we could state it a little better to fit us in our context this way. What good does it do to build the church, to seek the welfare of the city, to tell everyone that we need to love one another, we need to encourage others to follow Jesus with our lives if we're not going to do the, in, the same thing on the inside of the church. So let's stop calling the world to repent and love one another until we begin to repent and love one another like Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So here's two things we see in this text that we need to examine our hearts about. Are y'all with me? Y'all okay? All right. Because this is for you guys. Number one, just a question. Is there any area of our lives where we're being disobedient today? Now, I'm not, now I, I know some of you are going to sit there and you're saying, man, preacher, we all sin. Hey, I know that. But I also am, am very confident that the Bible says there's a difference between those who willfully sin and those who struggle with sin. You with me? The Bible says there's a big difference. Okay? Is there any area of your life where you're willfully just walking in disobedience to Christ this morning? Because two of the problems that the people were facing here in this context would have been avoided if people had followed what God had said they should do according to the Old Testament Scriptures. According to the Old Testament, the people of Israel were prohibited from doing two things. They were prohibited from charging interest to their brothers... And they were prohibited from um, selling their brothers and sisters into slavery. That, that's exactly what they're dealing with. If they, if they would have just followed the scriptures, they wouldn't be in the mess that they were in this morning. Uh, Exodus 22, verse 25, it says that people, if you lent money to the poor who were among you, don't charge them interest. Leviticus 25, it instructed that if their brothers became poor and sold themselves into slavery that they shouldn't be kept as a slave, but as a hired worker. And Leviticus 25 goes on to say, and if you take somebody's property, then somebody in their family, their kinsman redeemer, has a right to redeem that property and give it back to them. And then if that man has ever gets wealthy enough to be able to buy it back, uh, you have to sell it back for what you bought it for. And then if he can't do that, he, on the year of Jubilee, if, he, if he, he doesn't do it by the year of Jubilee, on the year of Jubilee, every property has to be returned to the one that you bought it for. And so if they had followed the, the Old Testament scriptures, the people would not have been in the mess that they were in in this context. And so here's the great statement. 
when we walk in disobedience to what God has clearly said we should not be doing, here's what we do. We discredit the name of God. You destroy your character and your witness. You, you lose your integrity. You know what you do? When you stand up for Christ in the workplace or in the school, and people know that you're a fake and you're a fraud, people don't listen to you. They laugh at you. They ridicule the God that you say that you love. All because you're walking in disobedience. Someone once said this. Prolonged personal sin takes a heavy toll on God's work in your life. Remember what we said in the beginning about this little building? Did did that building fall apart overnight? No, it didn't. Several months. Maybe even a year. The prolonged bombs. Prolonged explosions. And that building fell. Now some of you may be in this room this morning and you're walking in disobedience. And you may think it's, it's not a big deal. But the longer you, you walk in that disobedience, the more likely it is that it's going to take a heavy toll on your life. And the best thing that you could do today is to repent of that and get your heart right with Christ. I heard about a young man recently. Well, I'll save that story for another day. Here's a question. How does it destroy unity? Because, again, this is what this is uh, the context of the chapter. How does it destroy unity? How, how, does, how does my walking in sin hurt somebody else? Question. Have you ever heard somebody say, start walking in, in sin? And you know what they begin to do? Who does she think she is? She thinks she's better than I am. We're all sinners. What you begin to do is you begin to compare yourself to somebody else. Uh, you, you begin to think, I, I'm not that bad. You, you, begin to, you begin to put down somebody else to build yourself up. And when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're tearing apart the body of Christ. Does that make sense? And, and so your personal sin, although you may think it does nothing to hurt anybody else, it destroys the unity within the body of Christ. Think, think about it this way. My dad used to say this. My dad struggled with alcoholism. And my grandma, my, my grandmother, his mother would, would, I mean, she would beg him and plead him, plead with him, don't do this, Lyle, stop it. And you realize what you're doing? And my daddy would say, or my grandma would say, you realize how you're hurting your children and hurting your family? And my daddy would say something like this, it's my life, I'm not hurting anybody else. And how many of you know that somebody struggling with addiction it does more to hurt their families than it does to hurt themselves. And it's the same truth in the church. When, when you live in personal sin, it not only hurts you, it damages the entire church as well. And so if you're walking in disobedience, I think what the, the Father would be saying to us this morning is whatever it is, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. Because when you get rid of it, you'll begin to find out that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be to begin with. And you'll be better off for making that decision. Number two. 
mean, this, the question just arises naturally from the text. Are we, great question, it's just application. Are we more concerned with how much money we have over other people's well-being? Now, I realize we're talking about money and everybody gets real tense when we talk about money, but it's exactly what the leaders were doing here in this text. They were more concerned about their portfolios than they were whether or not their brothers and sisters had food on the table. I mean, it's just exactly what was going on. And are we more concerned about how much money we have over the families that the Father has put right around us for us to minister to? If there was ever a case of greed, you find it here in this text. And the Bible's clear. Money's not evil, but the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it will be the love of money that will destroy us and cripple us if we're not careful. In his book, Demolishing Strongholds, Johnny Hunt says that greed is one of the top three strongholds that you'll have to overcome and, and demolish in your life. Luke chapter 12, you, maybe some of you may remember this story. There was a rich man. I mean, he, he had so much, and, and his, his farm... Uh, crop that year brought in so much that his barns couldn't contain it. You know, some of you remember the story. Remember what he did? Did he give it all away? No. He tore down his smaller barns and built bigger barns to hold everything that he had so that he could begin to take it easy. Now, you, you can write it down. I, I've said it just about as long as I've been a preacher. And, 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 and on my honor before the Lord, I do my very best to live by this. God does not bless us with much so that we could spend more on ourselves, but so that we could be generous to others. That's what the Bible is saying to us here. Jesus called that man a fool because he he stored up treasures for himself instead of being rich toward God. Now, I'm not saying you don't save up for rainy days. I'm not saying it's anything wrong with retirement. If you know me at all, you know I, I do both. Uh, but the Bible does say, say it's, not, it's not about us. We are called to be good stewards of that. Now, very practical, just for a moment. My wife will tell you, I have been on a Dave Ramsey kick for about the past three months. She gets tired of me talking about Dave Ramsey. She gets, talk, she gets mad about, or she gets aggravated when I talk about finances. And she's aggravated with me right now, probably. <laughs> But Dave Ramsey, I mean, he's just proven practical wisdom to help us financially. If I could say speak practical wisdom into your life, if you if you really want to be serious about your money, I could just recommend two things to you. Get on a budget. You say, well, man, that, that, that sounds simplistic. No, I'm serious. You, you'd be amazed at how much you spend every month on stuff that you don't really need. Get on a budget. I mean, track every single month. Now, let me be clear of what I'm saying because used to, when I, because Leanne and I have always talked about a budget and have somewhat of a budget. When I say get on a budget, here's what I'm saying. Track where you spend your money every single month. That, that, that's a budget. Know where your money is going because if you don't know where it's going, it's going to tell you where it wants to go. And it always does. So get on a budget and track where you spend your money because here's what Jesus says. We're called to be stewards of our money. Right? Uh, we need to make sure that we're taking what God has given us and use it in a way that would be glorifying to Him. And so we get on a budget. So that way, we will budget in giving. 
Now that's point number two. How can I help you uh, in this area of, of demolishing the stronghold? Oh, generosity. You know, it's hard. It's really hard to be greedy if you have open hands. You know, I've used this illustration before, but remember the illustration? God's called us to be stewards. And that means what He places in our hands, it's really not ours. Whose is it? It's His. Now, when He places it in our hands, if our hands are open, that means that if there comes arises a need from somebody on the outside, my hand's open so that I can give to help them. But now, here's what we like to do. When God places it in our hands, most of us, we like to close our hand off. And we like to say, that's my money. I worked for it. It's in my account. Now, you could do that. But now, what happens when there's a need that arises? You don't help. Because your hand's closed. You become tight. You become stingy. And so you can't begin to to help others in a situation like that because, well, you're just stingy in that context. Johnny Hunt said this, and, and I don't say that ugly. I promise I don't. Johnny Hunt said this, strongholds of materialism and greed are very hard to erect on the soil of generosity. While generosity provides a rock-solid foundation for a life of faith, it acts like quicksand for the construction of a stronghold. And so here's the question. Are you putting your personal worth in front of the needs of those that are around you? Only you can answer that. Finally, it's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to look at verse 9. And I'll close with this. Nehemiah said this, The thing that you are doing is not good. All you, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to prevent the talk, taunts, the laughings, and the, and the mockings of the nations, our enemies? Can you imagine... Can you imagine what the world thinks and says about Jesus and his church when we don't live any differently than the world? You don't hear me? I mean, I mean seriously, just, just think about it. Statistics bear it out all day long. Those who go to church on a consistent basis typically don't live any differently than those in the world. Can you imagine what Satan thinks of us? Can you imagine what the world says of us? When we get caught in scandals and we don't display the love of Christ, it says something about us and our relationship with Christ. Aren't we, shouldn't we rather fear God so that they don't laugh at us and taunt us? Think about this. Jesus Christ in His flesh, He clothed, He veiled His deity. He came and He lived and walked among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died not because of his own sin, but he died on a cross in our place. He didn't just die on a cross, he died in our place. He died so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be forgiven. He died so that our relationship could be restored with the Father and that the power of sin could be broken in our life. And then beyond that, he sent his Spirit to dwell within us so that we could be empowered to conquer sin, not remain slaves to it. He sent His Spirit to empower us to be the people that He desires for us to be and He knows we can be. So when we live like the world and we make money our God instead of Jesus and we forsake the teachings of His world, the world the world looks at us and looks at Jesus and they laugh. 
they mock. And so let us be the people that will lead the way in fearing God. Let us be the people that will love our neighbors as ourselves. No matter what they look like, no matter what their sexual orientation, let us be people that reach out and show love. Let us be the people that will show the world that our God, our King, our Savior is real. Because if Jesus has changed us, if we really believe that He is who He says He is, our lives will be different. Now just look around the room just for a moment. Go ahead, just look around the room just for a moment. The people that you see in this room, they shouldn't be just the people you go to church with. They should be your family. It should be the people that you care deeply about. It should be the people that you'll bend over backwards, that you'll love and you'll care for. And when the world sees that, they'll say, hey, huh, Jesus really is real for you guys. Maybe I can get in on a little bit of that. So, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, would you your spirit work now as we, we stand and we think about how this, the Father would have us respond, how you would have us respond during this time, Lord. Father, may today be life-changing for those who are in our midst. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us. The words will be on the screen, but hey, you're here this morning, you're harboring anger, bitterness. You've got that in your heart, especially for those, your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think the Father would have you repent of that today. I know without a shadow of a doubt He would. Maybe you, you just found yourself and you think about money and you recognize, yes, that's what I've been doing. Money's been my God today. But you just repent of that. You don't have to come down forward and you know, kneel at the altar, but right where you are, you repent of that. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ. Maybe even as we sang earlier, or as it was the baptism, and you know that you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your Savior. There's not a greater thing I could beg you to do today other than asking Jesus to be your Savior. And so however the Spirit of God leads, you respond in obedience.